Welcome to Discovering Academia, an interdisciplinary podcast with preeminent professors from around the world, striving to stoke the curiosity of scholars everywhere. Today we talk with Siobhan Brady, Professor of Plant Biology and Principal Investigator of the Brady Lab at the University of California, Davis. Her work looks at the differences in spatial temporal development of cells and plant roots by studying transcriptional networks. In this episode, we talk about her research on roots, nitrogen processes, and flooding in plants. Additionally, we discuss the possibilities of breeding drought-tolerant plants, enhancing nitrogen uptake, and protecting crops from parasitic plants. We hope you enjoy. Welcome, Professor Siobhan Brady. Thank you for coming on today. Thank you so much for inviting me. We'd love to start off by hearing a little bit more about your story. How'd you get to Davis, and what got you interested in plants? Okay, so how did I get to Davis? It was... um a long, long path. <laughs> so I did my, I'm from Canada. So from a small, very, very, very small town in Ontario, which is a province of Canada. Um, I did my undergraduate and my PhD work at the University of Toronto. And I, uh, we, we had a lot of lab courses when we were in Toronto. Uh, unfortunately, unlike here, you don't have as many in your bio classes. And from my very first year, we did a plant biology lab. We worked on grasses that were metal tolerant. And I thought that was super fascinating. And then at the same time, we also worked on, or we had labs that worked on molecular biology. And at the time, actually, so Eduardo Bloomwald, I don't know if you know him, he's a professor here. So okay. he moved from University of Toronto to Davis. Uh, his lab worked on transporters okay. of this particular class called uh, ABC transporters. And some of those transporters have been associated with changes in um, like mineral transport and then others in some cases with, with metal transport, I believe. And so I just like the idea of putting those two together. Mm -hmm. And I thought that, yeah, plants were super exciting. I was amazed by everything that they could do. And then um, in my PhD, so I, I did undergraduate research work mm -hmm. when I uh, working on plant pathogen interactions. Okay. So I started in my second year. They had uh, programs that were focused on bringing students in in their second year, which is the sophomore year here, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And uh, and again, like I, I made lots of mistakes. I sucked, uh, but I really like if I'm doing something wrong, doing it better. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so I just kept working on that. Uh, and by the time I was in my fourth year, I was a very weird person in that I decided that I wanted to be a professor in plant molecular biology, which is usually not how things are done. So I picked a research lab for my PhD. Mm -hmm. His name is Professor Peter McCourt. Uh, his lab worked on plant hormone interactions, and I really wanted to work in his lab because it was one of my worst uh, biology classes, his genetics class in terms of my GPA. And But I loved the way that he thought, and mm -hmm. he was really, really good at teaching students how to think critically. Yeah. So I worked in his lab. I started working on plant roots. I could look at roots all the time under a microscope. I loved them so much. The sequence of the plant Arabidopsis thaliana had just been published in 2000, and there was so much data available mm -hmm. that it just seemed like you could do anything that you wanted. And then I met my husband, who's a, he's a software engineer, and mm. he and I were super geeky and loved talking <laughs> about uh, genome sequences and how to mine useful information. And then we started, uh, so I loved genomics at that point, and I started to get really interested in systems biology. 
And so then I made the transition from after my PhD, moving to Duke University, where okay. I worked with a, an expert in plant systems biology. Mm -hmm. His name is Philip Benfi. Worked there for about three and a half years, and uh, then I got offered the job here in Davis, and I started in January 2009. And uh, like Davis was my my dream school to work at because it's one of the best in the world in terms of plant biology. And there's also a woman named Catherine Esau who mm -hmm. uh, did a lot of research here and she works on, or she worked on plant developmental biology. Mm -hmm. And I had read her textbooks in my undergraduate classes. And so, yeah, I was just thrilled. That's amazing. I was super excited. I had my dream job and then that's how I ended up here. Yeah. And then you started to say that you focus a lot on the roots. Correct. What makes up the root of okay. a plant? Okay. So, uh, a root, so most plants make a root. They, uh, you can usually see them, right? When you take a seed and you germinate it, you probably did it when you were in elementary school, right? Putting a seed into like a paper towel, right? So you can see the root emerging first, usually. Uh, and then if you look at the root and you start to make sections through it, every root is the same. So it's made up of different cell layers. So imagine you have like a circle and a circle inside a circle and a circle inside a circle and a circle inside a circle. Those are all different cell types mm -hmm. in the root. It always has that same patterning. And uh, so that's if you like make a section through it, like you're cutting a carrot round, yeah. you know? Mm -hmm. And then if you uh, look along the length of the root, so the stem cell population, the population that gives rise to all of those cells, mm -hmm. that's all at the tip always. And then that's the part that's growing down. Okay. Every root is exactly the same in that particular way. And then the root system is formed by other roots that are coming off of the primary root. Mm -hmm. So that's that, that, that first root that's just mm -hmm. coming out of the seed. So they branch off, and then those roots themselves can produce more roots. Mm -hmm. yeah. And then that's how you get the, the root system. Okay. And what role do the roots play other than absorbing nutrients from the soil? Mechanical support. They're also critical in transporting water. So the majority of water that a plant needs to survive comes from below ground, which is through the roots. And then what would be some of the variation you see? Because I kind of find it hard to believe that all plants have the same root system. Is there some variation? Oh, yeah, that's a really great question and, and the focus of our research, which is um, there's such a diversity of plant roots that exist on this earth. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and that variation, I think, is also responsible for uh, allowing plants to grow in different environments. Mm -hmm. So at its like most basic level, so I described like the primary root system, um, but you can also have in corn as an example and other grasses, you can have uh, adventitious roots that come off of, um, well, first they come off of like the, 
the the bottom part of the stem. And is that the meristem? That's not the meristem. No. Yeah, that's uh, so it's just the stem. Okay. Um, so right at like the stem root junction, you can have some roots coming off of there. Those are called adventitious roots, mm-hmm. and then you can also have um, crown roots and brace roots. Mm-hmm. And brace roots are if you ever like if you go out and do like the corn maze mm-hmm. at Halloween, for instance, you and you're going through all the cornfields, you can see that there are these roots that form a circle at kind of the base of the stalk. And then they anchor, they further anchor the plant into the ground. Okay. That's that's a trait that's really heavily bred for because if you have lots of wind mm-hmm. or rain, it can keep the, the plant standing up. So that's different types of what we call root system architecture. But then what my lab works on is the differences in root cell type patterning. Mm -hmm. So I said there are always those circles of cells, like one inside each other. Uh, Generally, like there's generally the same types of cells, but in some cases there's, there's many more of a particular type of cell. Like in a Arabidopsis, this model plant we work on, for instance, there's like one layer called a cortex, But then in other plant species, there can be, you know, anywhere from two to like eight or even 11 or 13 cortex layers. So we want to understand what makes those layers different from each other. Mm -hmm. And in many cases, those cells can, uh, they've found ways to adapt to the environment. So they produce really particular features that protect the the plants from its external environment. Like it can help... uh, prevent water loss, for instance, by producing a particular type of wall, Mm. Um, or it can keep oxygen inside if plants are being flooded, Um, or it could help in like salt uptake. There's all different kinds of ways in which they can be modified, and we don't really understand what all those ways are. And then is that where your work with genetics comes in? Yes, that is definitely where (laughs) my work with genetics comes in. So... um, so we're interested in the genes that control the development of the plant root and specifically the development of certain cell types and now mm-hmm. even individual cells. And so once we so our first job is to try to figure out what the genes are that are found in each of those different cell types or cells. And then we next in order to figure out what they actually do, we make mutants mm. of them. And then we look to see what the cells look like afterwards. How so do you make their mutant? phenotypes? Ah. So um you well, if you're lucky enough, you work in a plant that has them already available to you, mm-hmm. <laughs> like through a resource center. So there's a resource center um in San Diego, for instance, that produced a lot of different mutants that we get to use for Arabidopsis. But, okay, so that's if you're lucky. But the different ways in which they make mutants in the past was by uh, either like you take seeds and you expose them to a really harsh chemical like ethyl methane sulfonate or to ionizing radiation. Mm-hmm. And then you'll have mutations in the DNA and they'll figure out where, well, ideally, other people will have figured out where those mutations are, but if not, you can figure it out yourself. You can also have mutants where there's transposons, so pieces of like DNA that have jumped randomly into the genome or have jumped into regions that you know ahead of time. 
yeah. and that can disrupt the genes. And then now with CRISPR-Cas9, yeah. we can make, well, we ideally want to make really precise mutations in mm -hmm. individual genes. So that's like yeah. the genetics part of it. And then once we've identified those genes, we then want to start to map the pathways of those genes. Which gene turns on another gene, that gene, what its target is. And so we like building these, mm -hmm. these giant networks mm -hmm. because each gene doesn't act in isolation. Mm -hmm. So we've also developed ways to be able to look at what those networks are and to use those networks to predict how that cell type is responding to the environment. And then we test those hypotheses. Again, using yeah. mutants. Yeah. And are you building these models within certain model organisms or are you testing a bunch of different varieties? Right. Um, so when I started, it was in a specific organism. So it was in Arabidopsis, which is this little weed whose genome was sequenced. Mm -hmm. And then as I started my own lab, we, we started working in tomato. Mm -hmm. um, so I don't know if you're familiar with, have you ever heard of the Tomato Genetics Resource Center? No, 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 no. <laughs> it's another center on <laughs> yeah. campus that you guys are getting familiar with all the different centers yeah. <laughs> in the state of California. Uh, so the Tomato Genetics Resource Center was started by this gentleman named Charlie Rick. Mm -hmm. And he went um, on these, to me, crazy field expeditions down the coast of South America. And he collected uh, a range of different tomato species, um, particularly it's the wild species mm -hmm. that he collected a lot of that grow in, again, all these crazy environments where nothing is perfect. Um, so we had this Tomato Genetics Resource Center here, and there were other people in my department who were working on tomato. And uh, they convinced me to look at the roots and... I did, and now like 70% of my lab works on tomato roots. Mm -hmm. And then uh, the other organism that we work on is sorghum. So sorghum by color, which is a, a grass that's grown in Asia and Sub-Saharan Africa. And even here now, like again, at that like the maze, you know, like <laughs> the, there's like the maze over on um, 113, I can't remember the name of it. But uh, they had like a sorghum field. Oh, mm -hmm. <laughs> I have kids. We go to mazes a lot. <laughs> and so fun. they grow sorghum there. And it's also like one of these niche, like hipsterish kind of plants in, uh, well, that they have in Davis where you okay. can make flour and things like oh, that. Yeah, yeah. But it's a staple grain for, yeah. for um, Asian, um, for a lot of Asian countries and okay. sub-Saharan African countries. Yeah. And then what are some of the findings from the tomato work? Yeah. Okay. Um, so, oh, so many, <laughs> like 10 to 12 years worth of findings. So let me see where to start. I'll give you like my, my big picture findings. So first we, we started comparing this domesticated species. So just like your regular tomato that you eat, there's mm -hmm. a processing tomato variety called M82. And we compared that to a wild tomato species, which is found in coastal deserts of, of South America with like very, very little water, very little nutrients. Mm -hmm. And so those roots look very different. So the domesticated like M82 root, it, go, it grows, you know, the root grows straight and down and in this regular way that we expect. But the wild species root, it 
it's very short and it grows off at an angle. Mm. Um, it has a different response to gravity. And so we've identified potential genes that control that. So uh, using quantitative genetics, um, but more importantly for the rest of our lab's research, we looked at the cell types in those roots and the ways in which those cell types were patterned. And mm -hmm. we found a lot of differences in those patterns. And um, so we've studied that a little bit further. In the wild species, there is this, this cortex layer that I mentioned mm -hmm. before called the exodermis. It's actually, it's present in both the domesticated species and the wild species. But in the wild species, it produces this barrier um, that's called suberin. It's like you can find suberins present in high levels in oak, in cork oak, for instance, okay. or like in cork and like a, a fancy beer or wine <laughs> bottle. Mm -hmm. And so there's a ton of it in those exodermis cells and it's on all the time. So in control conditions and drought stress conditions. But in the M82 species, it um, is only formed when the plants uh, are exposed to drought. Okay. okay. So we found that, um, so we found a lot of genes that control the production of this suberin in, in both species. And then we've shown in the domesticated species that uh, the production of suberin is necessary for a plant's response to drought. Mm -hmm. So uh, the idea is that if you have a plant that produces different levels of suberin, you know, if you have more suberin, then it should be drought tolerant. Yeah. Uh, and less suberin, it'll be drought sensitive. And so, so we can use this as a tool to try to breed more drought tolerant plants. Okay. And then would the production of suberin when it's not in a drought cause issues? That's a really good question. Yeah. Uh, likely, yes, because mm -hmm. it, it forms this really strong barrier. And so if you have a strong barrier being produced, it's hard for cells to divide mm -hmm. or continue to grow. So okay. there'll probably be a penalty in terms of root growth, so it'll be harder for the root to grow. And then those genes that control suberin biosynthesis, they also play a role often in the development of the fruit. So, you know, like okay, you have your, like, yeah. your fruit skin, which is like pretty strong. So suberin or like a, a relative of, of a, a molecule that's a relative of, of suberin is also found in those, in those fruits. So it could also influence fruit ripening and hardiness. Okay. And does soil type play into this at all? Like if you had two of the same plants and you edited them the same way, but placed them like one in Davis where you have very clay soil and one somewhere else, would they respond differently? Yes, <laughs> in all likelihood. And that's kind of the, that's a really big tension. <laughs> you've, you, you've stumbled on this really big tension between people who do a lot of basic plant research, like basic plant molecular biology and genetics, like I grew up doing and like my lab generally does, compared to people who actually breed plants for human consumption. Mm -hmm. Because the environment plays an enormous role in terms of root development. And so what you find in the lab in a greenhouse is generally not what you would observe in, for instance, soils with different types, mm -hmm. um, much less like regions with different temperatures or um, 
yeah, soils with different like mineral nutrient content or microbes or all the rest of it. So they're really, really highly responsive to environmental stress. That's what makes them so amazing. Yeah. So what we try to do is to look for genes that control processes in ways that don't necessarily change across different environments. Okay. Or like in the case of drought, or that they change in exactly the same way in different conditions. Okay. Like meaning like control and then water limited conditions. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You mentioned earlier the cell patterns of formation. Does that relate to the transcriptional networks or is that distinct? Yes. So um, when I talked about like the gene pathways and the genes that we look at, we are really, we love mapping gene networks. So like genes that control other genes. And so we work specifically on transcription factors and their targets. And so transcription factors are proteins that can bind to target regions of DNA. And then they can interact with other machinery to control transcription, to either increase it or to decrease it. And then the transcription produces these transcripts, and the transcripts go on and, and code for proteins that are generally the ones that are doing the stuff, okay. the stuff that are required for life. And so um, we like to map transcriptional networks for individual cell types. And we'd like to continue to do so in the future, even within individual cells. Mm -hmm. How do you go about mapping? The networks? Yes. Yeah. So uh, I'll try to explain it um, kind of generally conceptually. So we've, we've developed a way, or we, we translated away from, from work in worms and C. elegans so that we can map interactions between transcription factors and their targets in yeast. Mm. And so yeast is great because yeah. yeast like can grow in just days uh, as opposed to plants, which, you know, like Arabidopsis can grow in six to eight weeks, tomato like three to six months. Yeah. So we can look for the interactions between. We, we produce a huge amount of transcription factors of each individual transcription factor within a genome. Mm. And then we take the promoters of genes and we hook them up to different reporters that'll tell us whether or not uh, that, that promoter is enough to make the gene be turned on or turned off to be transcribed or not to be transcribed. Mm -hmm. And then we introduce the transcription factor and that promoter yeah. with what we call a reporter. We, we introduce those into yeast together. And then with that reporter, we can read out if that interaction occurs or not. So is it basically the reporter, you track the movement of the reporter, and then that tells you wh where it ended up going? The so not the movement of the reporter, but just like the activity. Like, is the yeast blue or is it not blue? Okay. And that'll tell us if, the trans if, if it's blue, that means that the transcription factor interacted with the promoter. Okay. And it'll just give us that like yes or no, mm -hmm. in yeast, it's able to do that. Oh, okay. And so we do that like on repeat for every mm -hmm. transcription factor, like 2000 within the Arabidopsis genome and then at, with individual promoters. Okay. So that's how we, how we map them. Yeah. And then we'll map it for an individual cell type by only including transcription factors which are expressed in a particular cell type. 
and then looking for promoters of genes that are mm. also only expressed or found in that cell type. Okay. And is temporal data taken for this? No. no. <laughs> and so, yeah, temporal data is really important. So, so this method in yeast is a way that you can relatively quickly get an idea of what possible interactions can occur. Mm -hmm. uh, but then in the plant, we want to look to see how those interactions can change over time. Mm -hmm. And that's like definitely more complicated. Yeah. You mentioned it a bit earlier, the difference between working in the lab and those type of plants versus the ones we use in the field or to actually grow. Mm -hmm. How do you hope to see your work in the lab like translate or how can it translate? Yeah. That is... So first of all, that's something that I had never even imagined <laughs> that my research could do when I was like growing up as a scientist because I only worked on on this plant to Rabidopsis. So my work is now starting to really impinge into translational research. So like working on Subarin, for instance, and then this other barrier called lignin that's produced, those barriers are considered to be an area of interest for breeding plants that are more able to handle diverse like climate stressors. Mm -hmm. So first we started the whole process just by working with at UC Davis, they have an innovation access team mm -hmm. that handles intellectual property and kind of walks you through what intellectual property is, uh, how just like the whole process works like how do you even start to define what intellectual property is and whether or not it would be of marketing um interest meaning that like if you file a patent on a particular gene that controls subarin uh would there be a company that would be interested mm. in 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 purchasing that patent or, or using that patent and licensing the technology and then uh, what I've realized is that they're really only interested in these genes if they can see a really clear way in which they can translate that into a plant that can be grown in the field. And so the companies have a lot of different ways in, in figuring that out, a lot of which I'm not exactly sure of how it works, mm -hmm. but, uh, but they have ways. And then what we also do on the side now is that we're trying to create plant lines in M82, mm -hmm. which is this background. It's a processing tomato, but it's not anything that's grown currently mm -hmm. by okay. any farmers like in the Central Valley. And so we are, we're going to try to make our plants that can do that, plant it in the field. And then if it produces a trait that we're interested in, then at least we have evidence that it can work in this particular tomato variety. And then we can provide more evidence to the companies that this could be of use. Mm -hmm. And then maybe they'd be interested in, in licensing um, so, the, the technologies that we've generated. So when you make the patent, is it mm -hmm. for a plant or a specific part of the genome that you've edited? or For a specific part of the genome. Okay. And then... There's a lot of different pieces of evidence that you provide to show that this gene can do something yeah. that is of commercial importance. Very. Mm -hmm. So the process starts 
kind of with working with the companies also to see like what you should lean towards or does it start with an idea and then test it once it's tested, present it? Like where exactly does that? So it's not with the idea, it's with a demonstration of an idea or of a principle and showing that it works. Okay. So that's the the first part. And then the companies, well, first the lawyers will decide here at UC Davis, they'll decide whether or not it's worth pursuing. And then it's up to the country or the companies to to then further decide if they're interested in in licensing that. Yeah. Yeah. So kind of taking a step back mm -hmm. and can we go into your work with how plants interact with nitrogen? Sure. And maybe just start that off. What is the nitrogen cycle and why is nitrogen so important for plants? The nitrogen cycle. Again, I had to look that up <laughs> <laughs> in my son's fifth grade biology. So, uh, but like the nitrogen cycle is all about the nitrogen that you have that exists on earth and how that nitrogen can be used. Nitrogen is critical for growth of every single living organism, right? Mm -hmm. So it's it's a core component of protein. So you need yeah. to have nitrogen in, in order to produce proteins. And as such, right? I mean, like if you're trying to eat super healthy, sometimes you may just like eat a lot of high protein food and less carbs. There's like issues with that, right? But the nitrogen is important there. Uh, so from the perspective of plant roots. So they do play a critical role in the uptake of nitrogen. So all of the nitrogen that we take as humans in some form comes from the plants. Mm. Even if it's like from eating meat that like the cow, for instance, has eaten grass or um, clover or whatever that has actually nitrogen in it and the, and the animals metabolize that nitrogen. So we have microbes in the soil that assist with, uh, with nitrogen fixation. And then plant roots are also responsible for nitrate assimilation. So taking up the nitrogen in usable forms into the plant. Mm -hmm. So that's nitrogen and, and how it works. And so we're really interested in genes that um, control the process in roots from a transcriptional perspective. So does the nitrogen fixation happen at the root level? Yeah, so for instance, like you have rhizobia mm. um, that are nitrogen fixing bacteria. And so then they interact with the plant um, in a symbiotic relationship. So they can fix nitrogen, um, interact with the root. The root can take up the nitrogen and then the root gives the microbe something else that it needs yeah. to to survive and then when you start to edit the genome of the plant mm -hmm. does that basically allow the plant to say take up more nitrogen or is it like a higher yield of what the bacteria gives off is that what the so we aren't really working with nitrogen fixing bacteria but i can tell you about we're interested in, so we're interested in finding transcription factors that can change the expression levels of genes that are involved in nitrate assimilation. Mm -hmm. So like, con so converting the nitrogen to a form that will be fed directly into like central metabolism for the plant. Okay. And so, yeah, so we want to identify those critical regulators, those critical transcription factors that can that can increase this process. And then you like really 
again, also your questions are great. So, <laughs> so you zeroed in on, on the really important part, which is that just because you have a transcription factor that can increase the production of these genes involved in nitrogen metabolism, it doesn't necessarily mean that that nitrogen is in a form that can be taken up into the parts of the plant that we use as, as food. Mm -hmm. And so you also have to measure like changes in nitrogen use efficiency. And mm -hmm. so that's how, how the nitrogen can be taken up and how it can be used mm -hmm. and also how it can be used to at the very end produce like seeds or fruit or whatever that, that have increased levels of nitrogen. Yeah. So this could be a way of reducing like, fertilizer use in a lot of ways, yes, right? Yes, exactly. So we definitely want to rely a lot less on nitrogen from fertilizer, which is applied in excess and which, you know, also pollutes like our waterways and soil and, and everything else. Could you maybe expand a bit more on like what excess nitrogen does to the environment? Sure. And I can do it in my like broad kind of perspective as a person who who understands this to a basic well, maybe not so basic degree, a general understanding. So if you have excess nitrogen in the environment, particularly in the case of water, so the nitrogen will uh, be leached out into the groundwater, which can go into like lakes, for instance, or, or riverways, which I'm using like as my Canadian <laughs> example, because I grew up by a lake. <laughs> and so we can see this all the time. And so when you have that increase in nitrogen, that nitrogen is used by plants in the water. So um, you can have huge increases in the amount of algae that are produced because they have lots of nitrogen so they can grow. And then when you have an increase in that amount of algae, then there's too much algae yeah. Um, and so then that in turn will change the ecosystem. So there will be other organisms in the water that can't capture available sunlight, for instance, and, and they can't grow. And then there's fish who can't necessarily acquire the oxygen that they need to be able to survive. So, and that whole process is called eutrophication. Mm -hmm. And then there's also ways that it affects soil and so this is really really important particularly in in like the central valley and the areas in the state of california that are really ag um ag that are agricultural producers where you have a huge amount of nitrogen in the soil and it's stored in ways that are really harmful uh for particularly like as an example like small children mm. so you could have nitrites for instance mm -hmm. and huge levels of nitrites in the groundwater that are taken up, for instance, in like carrots. Oh. And if you have like a baby and you're feeding the baby mushed up carrots, mm -hmm. and those carrots have high levels of nitrites, then it can cause really horrible um, effects on, for instance, like heart function in, 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 in infants. Yeah. So those are like two different yeah. ways in which they have really horrible downstream consequences. Yeah. And then with that fertilizer, fertilizer use still be classified under organic possibly because if you're thinking about the end user trying to hmm. prevent the nitrites or other things like that what's the best way to go about that yeah so i don't again i'll i'll answer in my general in 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 my way that i understand generally which is that if you can find ways for the soil to use its 
um, just like natural functions, right? Like you consider it as, as a whole ecosystem. If you can find ways to mobilize that nitrogen within the soil so that the plant can take it up better mm. without the addition of, of additional nitrogen, then that's better. It's better for the environment, but you also want to do it in a way that doesn't harm the ecosystem. So for instance, like you could, so there's, there's a balance with everything, right? So um, I don't, you know, like I don't think that if you want to be able to support a massive agricultural ecosystem like that, for instance, in the state of California, that you're ever going to be able to completely, um, you know, get rid of the use of nitrogen in fertilizer. Like it's still needed to be able to produce enough enough food that that we can grow in like a cost-effective manner. But there's certainly ways in which we can try to improve the ways that plants need nitrogen so that you have less of a requirement for those really high amounts of, of nitrogen. And have the plants that have been edited in the lab for nitrogen fixation, have those reached commercial markets no. yet? Is that <laughs> on the horizon or is that? Uh, no. Okay. Um, it's written about in grant proposals. <laughs> but yeah, it's about at that level. Yeah. yeah. And then you also mentioned earlier um, flooding and how that could impact plants. Could you talk a little bit right. about that research? Right. Okay. So, um, so flooding is also a big problem with climate change. So in the same way that like here, for instance, oh, yeah, I mean, like California is a perfect example, right? Like we have historic, you know, seven-year droughts. And then we have periods of time like this winter and spring where just like there's been constant flooding. And again, it's plant roots that are, you know, really the first responders to those stresses. So with flooding, you have plants which aren't able to get oxygen mm -hmm. because they're their roots are exposed to, you know, huge amounts of water and they aren't able to, to access the oxygen that they need to survive. And uh, we were involved in a project that had a lot of different collaborators. So uh, ones in, um, so our, 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 our whole consortium is, consists of myself, of Neely Masinha, who is a professor in the Department of Plant Biology, Julia Bailey-Serez, who is at UC Riverside, mm -hmm. and then Roger Deal, who's at Emory University in Atlanta. And so in that project, we wanted to see how plant roots respond to flooding, to, to excess water. And we did so by looking at roots at like different levels of gene regulation to see if there were similar ways in which they did it and if there were different ways in which they did it. And so the similar ways could tell us if the plant, if you go back way in like history, you know, hundreds of thousands of years ago, if there's just like a core way in which they respond to that stress, that's the same. And then we could look at a plant like rice, which has just the way that it grows, right? Like it grows in a paddy, for instance. Mm -hmm. If you go over the causeway, you can see the the rice growing probably like, uh, well, I think everything's a little bit different now because of the the flooding. But like right about now, over the next like month or two, you could start to see the, the rice growing in water-filled paddies. And so those roots have figured out a way to respond 
to the flooding by activating particular programs that allow it to, to grow really, really well and actually thrive in that type of environment. So we were also looking at ways in which those plants respond favorably. And then you have the information that you need at that point to see if you can figure out how to change a plant to become more able to withstand that flooding. What was that favorable change? Oh, there was, <laughs> it's like a kind of general, um, we found some really general changes and it's changes that occurred across, you know, hundreds or thousands of genes at a time. Mm. So the plants were able to open their chromatin, like so to make their their DNA much more accessible in a really um in a really dramatic way. So they were able to really open their their chromatin, their DNA to make it accessible. And they were able to really quickly ramp up the expression of genes that they typically respond with in terms of like changing what transcripts are produced. Mm -hmm. So rice did that really, really well. Uh, and then the other species, like this wild tomato species that I talked about, it like basically did nothing. <laughs> <laughs> it had a very like low level response, but it did change um, the amount of like nuclear RNA that was produced, but still in like a really like piddly kind of manner. So, yeah. And with the flooding, is the main issue the lack of oxygen going to the plants or is it disease that's formed as a result of, you know, like root mold or things yeah. like that? So both. So, but the first, so we looked at the most immediate response, which is the immediate change in, in oxygen levels. Um, but absolutely, it changes everything, right? Like it changes the microbial, e you know, the microbial ecosystem that's that's around the roots, their particular functions. You have, you know, neighboring plants which have started to rot. Yeah, you have you have a lot of issues. Yeah, and is rice the only plant that naturally responded favorably to flooding, or are there other? Oh, there plants are lots of okay. other like um, like wetland species, yeah. for instance, that. That or like even you know like mangroves, which I find to be fascinating, right? Those kind of plants they only grow in in wet environments, mm -hmm. and so. But we use these plants for which there's more for our research, for which there's more resources available, like genetic mm -hmm. resources available mm -hmm. that we can manipulate. Yeah. And then, is there a possibility of taking, say, whatever rice is able to do, and applying that to a different plant? That's what we'd love to do. Yeah. Do you think it will work? Um, I think it's definitely possible. Mm -hmm. I think that you have to think of the most clever way to do it possible in a way that, like you asked before, in a way that doesn't interfere with the other aspects of plant growth. Yeah. So without a penalty. Because do you fully understand the mechanism for which the response occurs. So it's really, so there's there's one gene that was, um, so that Pam Ronald and Julia, so Pam Ronald here at UC yep. Davis and Julia Bailey Serez um, worked on called snorkel. And so we definitely know a lot about how that gene works and how it controls the submergence response, but there's a lot of other genes that also control the response. And so any response to a stress like that requires other genes. 
And so, yeah, there's, there are a lot of ways in which you can change the response potentially in other plants, but you have to try everything out yeah. first, mm -hmm. which requires more basic research. Okay. I'm not sure if I answered your question. Did I? Yeah. No, I the think, original I, I question. Think so. okay. Because um, would it be more editing what is already there or would it be like taking CRISPR and adding it into? Mm. From a basic research perspective, you'd maybe do both taking things away and adding things. But for an agricultural perspective, like if you think about having plant species be, um, or plant varieties being able to be grown within the U.S., then editing is the the better way to do it, like taking things away. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then kind of one last part of your overall research yeah. that we want to touch on is uh, your work for Promise. Right. Could you go into yeah. that a little bit? Yeah. So Promise is, so it stands for, let me make sure I get this right. Promoting microbes for integrated striga eradication. I'm pretty sure that's right. <laughs> <laughs> so um, this is a Bill and Melinda Gates funded project with many different partners. So UC Davis through my lab, uh, an, a company called Ag Biome, which mm -hmm. is in North Carolina. Uh, we have partners at the Ethiopian Institute for Agricultural Research in Holata, Ethiopia, and then a lot of collaborators in the Netherlands. So at the University of Amsterdam, NEO, which is the Dutch Institute mm -hmm. for Ecology, they're the lead on that project. The Westerdijk Institute, which is um, an institute that specializes on, on fungi. Mm -hmm. Okay, so those are all, all the players. And our goal is to identify microbes that interfere with this interaction of a parasitic plant with striga. Okay, mm -hmm. so what is a parasitic plant? So in this case, the parasitic plant that we work with is called witchweed, mm -hmm. and it's striga hermonthica is its scientific name. And in sub-Saharan Africa, for instance, where there's very little water, so sorghum in particular is, is really quite dramatically affected, although like maize or millet are also mm -hmm. affected. So what happens is that you can just see if you plant the sorghum, you know, after like five or six leaves are produced that the plant starts to look really sick and wilts. And mm -hmm. then you have this other green plant that comes up and that produces these beautiful flowers, but the sorghum itself has died. Mm -hmm. And so, so this witch weed, the striga, it produces lots of little teeny tiny seeds. Mm -hmm. And the teeny tiny seeds fall down. They look like dust, like little pepper flakes. They live in the soil for like sometimes up to 30 years. Oh, wow. And so this parasitic plant, so it needs sorghum to survive or it needs a host to survive. And so sorghum, again, as an example, when it grows in the soil, it generally can grow pretty well in environments where there isn't a lot of water, mm -hmm. where there isn't a lot of nutrients. But even still when there isn't a lot of phosphate, for instance, then the plant root will send out the signal, like help. I want to recruit microbes that will help me uptake phosphate. Mm -hmm. And so it generally sends out the signal, this plant hormone, that called strigolactone. But anyways, to convince arbuscular mycorrhizal fungi, which can help, um, which can help bring phosphate into the plant so it so that's the signal that it produces because it wants the root to interact with these arbuscular mycorrhizal fungi to get more phosphate. And 
then strigas hijack that process. So striga, when it perceives that strigalactone signal, the striga seed germinates. So it can only do so when a host produces or like when its target produces that, that signal. And then the striga germinates, finds its way over to the root. The plant root produces another signal. It's called the hostorium inducing factor. It's just, it's a particular chemical. And then the striga produces this, it's called like a hostorium. It looks kind of like, it's like a, it's like a flat paddle kind of. Um, And then that structure is able to penetrate the root. It'll attach and then it'll penetrate the root. And then it will form connections between the parasitic plants and the host root. So it'll form these xylem-xylem connections, which basically means that it can suck up all the water and all the mineral nutrients from the plant. Mm -hmm. And then it'll just grow along in its merry way. And the sorghum can't access anything anymore because the striga is sucking it all up. Yeah. So the goal of that project is to identify microbes that interfere with that interaction. Oh, and then those microbes can identi- can ideally then be applied as ways to reduce that interaction between sorghum and striga so that these farmers can grow sorghum and get sufficient yield. And once that interaction happens, that like initial connection after the paddle is mm-hmm. connected, it, at that point, is it kind of like done? Is there any way to reverse the connection at oh, that point? Um yeah, that's one of the things that we're interested in, like using the cell types. So it comes back to the the cell types. So we would love to, and and we think we found ways that you can have the paddle go into the root, but then it'll hit a barrier. So okay. it'll like hit a wall, and that it'll hit that wall before it hits the xylem. Okay. And then once that hits, once it hits that wall, then it'll stop. The other way that we found um, this to work is by, so remember when we talked about flooding? Mm -hmm. Again, it comes back to certain cell (laughs) types. That's really nice. So in the cortex, we also talked about the cortex, in uh, flooding tolerant species, what they do is they produce these holes in the cortex. Mm -hmm. So in a really targeted way, when there's really low oxygen, like from flooding, the plant will start this process where it'll basically tell its cells to commit suicide. Mm-hmm. And so then we'll have just these holes in the cortical cells where they can keep oxygen for their mm-hmm. use later on. And so we've identified, um, or one of the ways in which you can interfere with this interaction is to have the microbiome uh, produce somehow these holes in the root, mm-hmm. in the cortex. And so we think that that means that like the the paddle, like the hostoria, will move into the roots and then it'll hit these holes and then it just won't do anything else because it's like, what's the point? Why am I bothering? That's all speculation. But yeah, but we can definitely, we've definitely shown that these holes are correlated with reduced striga infection. Yeah, okay. So if you're talking about the physical barrier one, would that be like having the xylem cells produce like more lignin to then block it? Ooh, nice. That was good. That was very good. So it could also take place at lignin in the xylem. We also want it 
we also want to see if we can have it take place in another like neighboring cell mm. before it gets to the vascular tissue where the xylem is, so-called the endodermis. Yeah. And then it could even do so at the exodermis, which is this other cell layer that we talked about. So there's lots of different places where these walls made of lignin or suberin could be put up. Okay, that's very interesting. And how damaging are these witch weeds to the plant yield? Like more in a more broad sense. Devastating. Like, devastating. Devastating. I can't remember. I have I have actual numbers. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, just devastating. Okay. You can have, you know, year upon year upon year of like, you know, essentially zero, zero harvest. And so the farmers are out there like weeding, hand weeding, but because there's like so many striga seeds. Yeah. yeah. It's it's almost futile, right? Yeah. So the ultimate goal is to like hopefully make food a lot more secure if we Correct. can get the sorghum to be protected against the weed. Exactly. Yeah, you've got it. And I, we kind of touched on this earlier, but with the like, editing and of those different genes, is there like definable criteria that make a certain edit expressionable or is that kind of like we talked about it has to really just depend on what you're doing with the environment and all those different factors right so i again this is like my general knowledge of what i understand so editing as determined by the u.s department of agriculture agriculture uh has to hit particular requirements so you're just editing the gene in its natural environment like it's natural genomic context, you're not introducing any new sequence. Mm-hmm. You're just making mutations in sequence that you could get just by natural mutation within mm-hmm. within a population. Like you know that that'll occur just like regular. Like there's lots of mutation occurring all the time in in, in genomes. And then the second piece is that you cannot have um, a foreign gene or protein be within the plant species, and so. That's this protein called Cas9, mm-hmm. and Cas9 is this protein that that uh, makes the mutations. Okay, and so you have to have that Cas9 be removed from the plant. Okay, so those are the two basic requirements yeah. that you have to meet. And so, but any plant species, or sorry, any plant line that's produced that's released into the field has to undergo these like USDA reviews. So if you can't add foreign like, genetics, so... It doesn't mean that you can't. It just means that like, um, because the US has lots of cases in which it does allow, um, in which it does allow like cases where you can have foreign DNA, mm-hmm. um, but it goes through an independent re- uh, review process. And that review process is really lengthy. Oh, so okay. the CRISPR edited plants, they don't require any of that like really laborious Because review. the Cas9 gets removed. Mm-hmm. And there's nothing foreign in there anymore. Okay, and would foreign be defined as like human-made genetics or like if we figured out the mechanism for rice to become very tolerant of flooding and we could take that and put it into a different plant, is that now foreign to that plant because it's rice? That's my understanding. Okay. Yeah. So then that would have to go the, through the longer review process. Correct. Yeah. Interesting. Which is why you kind of want to take like with our, like the SURF project, the submergence upregulated gene families, we want to identify genes which are conserved in the response across all plant species and then try to find a way in which you can change 
the response so that with with a gene that's already existing and then you can just find ways to make it like more active or change it so it can do it better it's kind of tapping into a genetic memory oh well that's a whole nother thing but tapping into like the genetic or the gene pool that's already there memory is different so memory is like changes to uh there's like specific modifications made to the DNA that isn't actually changing the DNA sequence. That's like called epigenetics and that's yeah. associated with memory. Okay. So, yeah. So like in that case, like for serfs, it'd be like, I think it was like 82 or that 82 plants that have that gene in them. Or there's 82, um, there's 82 genes that were found across okay. all of those plants. Okay. Yeah. So they're like within those plants, those 82 are free game to be that initial review. But then if you stepped out of that. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Correct. Okay. Yeah. And with this research is like when it's going through the review process, are they looking into like the nutritional makeup of these plants after they've been mutated? So for the cases where you're introducing foreign DNA, that's my understanding okay. that they do. But for the CRISPR edited lines where you weren't changing anything, again, as far as I understand, they aren't doing anything. Okay. Because any changes that it would make would, it, it could change the nutritional status, but mm-hmm. in a way that would just happen in nature anyways. Yeah. Okay. So where do you see the future of your work going? Yeah. Also a good question because I'm kind of in this transition point now in my lab's research. I have a, a bunch of people who found, you know, great positions that are moving on. And so it's like a new, a new stage of my lab's research. I am super excited about ways in which cell types respond to the environment and ways in which they they mount these programs that change the way that they look or change the types of barriers that they produce. And like, there's so many exotic ways that they mm-hmm. do this in like, and you can just like, look at like that, that textbook by Catherine Esau that, or I mentioned Catherine yeah, Esau before yeah. and she has a textbook and like, you can just look at these images that have been around for like centuries. And, you know, sometimes they're drawings if they've been around <laughs> for centuries. And there's just such a variety of the ways that these plants can do it. And so I really want to understand the different ways in which plants can do it, understand like the gene networks that are responsible for how they're doing that. And then use those, you know, like like we talked about with those conserved genes. Is there a way that we can use those to encourage cell types of other organisms to do the same thing for for a beneficial outcome? And then I'm really interested in, in climate change and finding a way to use those uh, to protect plants from those stressors that are more extreme or different than what these plants have over, you know, time evolved um, to respond to. Yeah. Or like where they, they haven't evolved in order yeah. to respond to yeah. those stresses. Yeah. Oh yeah, I could see so many different applications that yeah. are really inspiring. And I kind of want to touch on, you talked about like your lab and people kind of shifting out. Yeah. Um, I saw you had something on lab culture. Yes. The importance of building that up. Could you mm-hmm. kind of talk about that? Yeah, so this was uh, a... Um, like a a perspective or a commentary piece that came out of this international conference on Arabidopsis research um, that it was, uh, it's actually organized by this woman, Joanna Friesner, who was a former UC Davis uh, graduate student. So in this conference, so this actually, this woman named 
Jackie Monahan and Heather McFarlane, who are both Canadian, because <laughs> I'm Canadian. That's very exciting. Um, so they approached myself and um, Sonali Roy and Elizabeth Haswell, and I think also Benjamin Schwessinger, who are from different labs across across the world. And we all contributed uh, seminars to talk about how we think about uh about developing a lab culture that's sustainable, that is balanced, that is set up really intentionally, where you really think about what you want your lab environment to be and the steps that you can take to um, make it such that you're going to accomplish your goals in the short term and not be burnt out yourself or have your lab members be burnt out in the long term. Um, so that's where it it came from. Um, and so we each, yeah, we each contributed our our pieces with respect to that. And in my particular case, I talked about how to uh, how to think about developing your area of research for your lab when you're a new professor and and how to think about that process. But I think like more generally in that paper, or in that that commentary piece, uh, we all value having a lab where we think about our culture mm-hmm. and how we want students and postdocs and scientists in that lab to to really like live their their work life while while they're in your lab for this period of time. That's amazing. And could you expand a bit more on like how people should go about finding what they're going to research? Yeah. Um, practice, right? And so we also talked about this when when you approached me initially about this podcast. Uh, you two, for instance, mm-hmm. as an example, are really interested in research, probably the most interested of anybody in terms of like your diverse interests <laughs> that I've ever met before. Um, but you need to um, hopefully secure labs where you can get practice Mm -hmm. with research. So doing a research internship. And so that's ideally what you should do. And in my opinion, you should start doing it as soon as possible Mm -hmm. rather than later, because like if you approach um, a professor, for instance, about doing your research and you're in your last quarter of your, of your grad undergraduate career, there isn't as much, you know, like you would train somebody, but you can't learn a ton in just a quarter. So, so anyway, so just approaching professors and identifying um, different and really diverse types of research projects where you can like actually go into the lab and, and learn how, how they're doing their research that you can get more experience. There's also a lot of like, you know, you can get, undergraduate internships that are advertised on, um, I can't remember the name of it, but there's like a website where these opportunities are advertised. Mm-hmm. The ICC. The ICC. We'll, Inter- find we'll link it. We'll yeah. find it. Okay, thank you. <laughs> um, and then there's also just like lots of ads that go up, like for instance, research experience for undergraduates. Uh, so we have one of those where it's like, okay, it's May 15th, I have to really advertise it, where the government gives you funding to have students, undergraduate students do do research in your lab for the summer, but they have to be undergraduates. Mm-hmm. And they're given stipends and they're involved in hopefully 
uh, training, not just in the research, but also in like science as a as a professional career. Oh, okay. So there's opportunities like that. But again, if you start uh, earlier on in your undergraduate career, then you'll have more time to get more experience, and then you'll be more attractive to other professors as you as you move through your academic career so that you can get more experiences, more diverse experiences. Yeah. And then with those experiences, I'm sure you'll learn to ask your own questions and exactly. find the next way. Exactly. Yeah. So you want to have a number of experiences, but if uh, you want to also really have the the more concrete way of doing research, you should hopefully have one experience where you're doing like a year or so mm-hmm. or a year and a half of research within one lab so that you can begin to develop, you know, your own independent questions yeah. and start to answer them by doing research in, in a way that's appropriate for for your level as an undergrad researcher. That makes sense. And with all that being said, do you happen to have any openings in your research lab? I will have a research experience for undergraduates open, and I am the limiting factor in that <laughs> <laughs> because my graduate student, Kevin, has made the ad. I I will be advertising it, and I would love to have an undergraduate who hopefully is at the end of their sophomore year. Um, and so if you're interested, contact me. There's a stipend associated with it too, right? So it can be like... Can, so it'll give you enough to survive, like, you know, to be able to pay for accommodations mm-hmm. and food. Um, and we have an awesome lab. Uh, I have a really great, vibrant yeah. set of um, of graduate students and postdocs who are pretty friendly. We're a good team. Yeah, so if you're amazing. interested, contact me. Yeah. Perfect. And then kind of one last thing is, do you have any advice aside from research just to students broadly that are interested in plant science and plant biology? Just be passionate about about learning new things, just uh, like the world outside is so beautiful, right? Like just go out into the Arboretum, like right now, and, you know, just go and look at the plants and just think about how they actually live in these different environments, how they produce these different forms, their colors, you know, like the tight, like look at the ground and think about what they have to do to be able to like live in that, in that ground, just be amazed by by nature itself right like we use nature to kind of calm and center ourselves um but also think about like just how that how that nature came about like what's happening at those individual cells that make them look like that there you have that would be my advice (laughs) thank you so much professor brady okay thank you so much for doing this it's a really great resource thank you thanks To continue your learning, go to our website, discoveringacademia.com. There, you'll find the show notes, resources mentioned, ways to get involved, and much more pertaining to each professor. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe, leave a review, and join our newsletter to stay up to date. Until next time.